The AFEM Industry Insider is brought to you by This Is Distorted, the world's biggest producer and syndicator of electronic music programs and podcasts. For more information, go to thisisdistorted.com or at thisisdistorted on socials. On air, on demand, on brand. This is Distorted. This is the Industry Insider from the Association of Electronic Music. The AFEM Industry Insider. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Industry Insider from the Association for Electronic Music, the global trade body representing the entire ecosystem of electronic music from small startups to huge global companies, artists and individuals in all the weird and wonderful areas of our amazing industry. I'm Andy Durant and this month we're going to be talking about Article 17, which sounds exciting, right? I mean, who amongst us can honestly say that we don't spend most evenings digging into the intricacies of European copyright directives. But you know what? It it actually is very interesting and more importantly, it's potentially going to have a huge, massive impact on the way that music is promoted and distributed and streamed and consumed and paid for online so we thought we'd better bone up on it and get some experts together. Later in the programme, I'm going to get an update from Greg Marshall about all the projects that AFEM has been working on over the last couple of months and a short profile as well on Moving the Needle a fantastic new initiative to support women in the music industry. But let's dive straight straight into our main topic, taken from a big group call on the 10th of March and an essential listen for everyone in the music industry. This is the AFEM Industry Insider, the podcast from the Association for Electronic Music. Right, welcome everybody to this AFEM education call, which is also doubling as the main piece for this month's Industry Insider podcast. I'm Andy Durant. I'll just be here to join everything together because I'm no expert on this month's topic, which is very grandly called Safe Harbour Reform and Article 17 Implications. It feels like a pretty complicated and a nuanced subject that's incredibly important to our industry. So we've got three experts to to kind of guide us through it. We've got Chris Cook, Managing Director at 3CM Unlimited, and from Reed Smith, Sophie Goosens, Partner, Entertainment and Media Industry Group, and Gregor Pryor, partner and co-chair of the Entertainment and Media Industry Group. So, hello guys. Hello there. Thank you very much for, for giving up a bit of your time, Chris, to give us a, a, a bit of a kind of an intro and talk about the basic principle of Safe Harbour to, to get us kicked off. Yeah, so we thought that before we get into the Q&A about what's happening in the European Union right now with the Copyright Directive and specifically Article 17, I would just give you a very speedy, no more than 10 minute overview about what this thing called the Copyright Safe Harbour is all about and why, for the last five years, it became a top lobbying priority for the wider music industry to get this safe harbour reformed. And actually, although reform is now underway in the European Union, that campaign continues behind the scenes, both beyond the EU, but also there are other issues with the safe harbour as far as record companies and music publishers and collecting societies are concerned, which haven't necessarily been addressed even within Europe. Let's begin by just explaining what this thing called safe harbour is, specifically the copyright safe harbour. So this is a principle that sits in copyright law in most countries around the world, and it's about restricting the liabilities of internet companies who provide networks and servers to users all over the world who then immediately use those networks and servers to distribute other people's content without permission, without license. So it means that those people are using the internet companies' networks and servers to basically infringe 
copyright. And what the safe harbor does is it reduces the liabilities of the internet companies themselves for the infringement that is happening across their networks. When we talk about safe harbor, we're often talking about either the US safe harbor, which specifically sits in the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or more recently and here today, we're talking about the European safe harbor that began in the EU as a result of an e-commerce directive. But let me just quickly explain to you, first of all, a little bit more detail, the principal safe harbor, and then secondly, the music industry's beef with this particular element of copyright law. So let's start off by imagining that we have a random person on the internet who then uploads to the net a piece of content that isn't theirs. Okay, so let's say it's a track that belongs to a record label. And that random person distributes that unlicensed content to the world over the internet. That's copyright infringement. And so what copyright law says is if you're the copyright owner, if you're the label that released that track and you own the rights in that track, then you should sue the copyright infringer for damages. So you have to find out where that infringer is, find out where they live, and then you sue them. Okay, so that's what copyright law says. Sue them for damages. However, that random person, in order to share this unlicensed content, has almost certainly made use of one or more internet intermediaries. An ISP that gave them internet access, possibly a hosting company or a digital locker. Maybe they posted the content to social media, or maybe they're using a user upload platform like YouTube to get the content out there. Now, as a copyright owner, you would much prefer to sue the intermediary than the random person. Two reasons. First of all, the intermediaries are much easier to find. And secondly, they almost certainly have more money. And there's no point suing poor people. So you only sue rich people. So we would love to be able to actually sue the internet intermediary for copyright infringement. However, because of the safe harbor, you can't do that. The safe harbor is providing protection to that internet company. Providing the internet company is not actively involved in the infringement. It doesn't know about the infringement. It wasn't involved in creating the file that's being distributed. It's not encouraging its users to infringe copyright. Providing the internet company's role was passive, then it can't be held liable for the infringement. But there are some other provisos for that protection. And one key proviso is that the internet company has to have what we call a takedown system in place, which basically means that if the copyright owner spots the infringement and says to the internet company, that's our content, it's on your networks illegally, without license, then the internet company is obliged to remove the content. And providing they remove the content, they have a takedown system in place, then they have this safe harbor protection. So at a very basic, slightly simplistic level, that's what the copyright safe harbor is all about. Over the last 20 years, when that safe harbor has been in law and it's been evolving, there have been a number of controversies around Safe Harbor, and the music industry in particular, although not just the music industry, has had some issues with Safe Harbor. One of the issues is the quality of the takedown systems. So some music companies argue that certain internet companies have bad takedown systems. Maybe they have bad takedown systems on purpose. There used to be a streaming service with user upload element called GrooveShark. And the music industry used to argue that GrooveShark had a deliberately shoddy takedown system so that it could claim safe harbor protection, but not actually have to remove any content because it needed that content to have a compelling service. But even with those companies that are legitimate, that they respect the law, they have good takedown systems, many in the music industry still argue that actually even good takedown systems often aren't ideal because as soon as you've issued a notice about a piece of infringing content and the platform has removed that piece of infringing content, the same piece of content's re-uploaded 
by another user or sometimes the same user. And so we have to issue another takedown notice and then it pops back up and we issue another takedown notice. And people often talk about that as being like a game of whack-a-mole. You're constantly you know, knocking the content offline, it gets re-uploaded. So plenty of copyright owners say even the better companies with better takedown systems, it's still a problem. There's actually a controversy on the other side of takedown systems, which is what if a copyright owner issues a takedown against a piece of content? But it turns out that actually the use of that bit of content, although it was the label's music, was covered by a copyright exception or what in US law would be called fair use. So maybe it's a piece of critical analysis or it's a parody. And actually that person was allowed to use that content without license. And how do takedown systems deal with those sorts of exceptions? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. There have been some controversies around repeat infringer policies, particularly under US law. Another condition of safe harbor protection is that you have a system in place to deal with users who are consistently sharing content without license, getting a flood of takedowns issued against their content. But then the thing we're really here to talk about today is there's also the controversy around YouTube type platforms claiming safe harbor protection. And that's where most of the attention has been in recent years, that the music industry decided that it didn't like the fact that YouTube type platforms were claiming safe harbor protection. And so a lot of the safe harbor debate became about YouTube and the impact it was arguably allegedly having on the streaming services like Apple Music and Spotify and Amazon. And it was as these streaming services started to gain momentum seven or eight years ago, that the music industry really started to have issues with platforms like YouTube claiming safe harbor protection. And let me quickly explain what the issue was here. It was about negotiating power. So let's just quickly think, if you have a service like Spotify, what do the deal negotiations look like between Spotify and a record company like Universal Music? Basically, if you've got a streaming service like Spotify, then the service, the licensee, needs content. So it goes to Universal Music and it does a deal. Okay, and Universal demands very tough terms to give it access to the content. But once the deal is done, Universal then provides content to the service, to Spotify, whoever. But crucially, if the service doesn't get a deal from the record company, it doesn't have any content. And so it can't operate. And in there comes the negotiating power of a Universal Music, a Sony Music, a Warner Music, independent record companies. Because if the service doesn't do a deal, then it can't have any content and it can't operate. However, let's imagine you're a user upload platform like YouTube. Actually, you've already got the content because your users have uploaded it, but you still need a license to, to be able to monetize that content, to build a business around that content. So you still want to do a deal. But crucially, if a deal can't be agreed because the record companies say are demanding very, very demanding terms, they're asking for too much money or whatever, if you don't agree a deal, well, the platform still has the content. And the platform will say, well, we have safe harbor protection, but we have a takedown system. So start issuing takedown notices against your content. But now the record company or whoever has to monitor that platform for its content and issue takedown notices. So that every time it spots the content, it issues a takedown, the content gets removed. But then, as already discussed, the content reappears. So we have to take it down again. And then the content reappears and it gets taken down again. And so we end up in that process. Now, okay, we know that platforms like YouTube have audio ID systems that help to an extent. But nevertheless, there is an onus on the copyright owner to be managing that takedown process. And that has a cost associated to it. And so we're now in a different scenario. So whereas with the Spotify type deal, 
the label can say, if we don't do a deal here today, you're screwed. You can't have a service. So we're going to demand lots of money. Whereas with YouTube, if we don't agree a deal today, we're kind of screwed because now we've got to hire a team of people to manage the takedowns. So that increases the negotiating hand of the platforms. And this is where this notion of a value gap came from. What the music industry argued was the platforms like YouTube exploited safe harbor to get more preferential terms, which meant that the money coming in from those services was lower than the money coming in from Spotify type services. And that difference in income was the value gap. And so a conversation started to begin in the music industry, which was, well, what if user upload platforms like YouTube didn't have safe harbor protection or they had restricted safe harbor protection? So that would increase our negotiating hand because if the platform wouldn't do a deal, it would be in a problematic position as well as or instead of the copyright owner. And so about five years ago, the music industry stopped talking about piracy and file sharing and Pirate Bay and started talking about getting the copyright safe harbor reformed. Can we get safe harbor rules rewritten so that we restrict the use of safe harbor in some way by user upload platforms like YouTube? Not just YouTube, I should stress, but a lot of this became the music industry versus YouTube. Now, as it happened, the European Union, as part of an initiative called the Digital Single Market, began a review of EU-wide copyright law, specifically with digital markets in mind. And the music industry saw that as an opportunity to try and get the safe harbor reformed and thus launched the big value gap campaign. In the original draft of the directive, it was Article 13 that set out to reform the safe harbor. The music industry wasn't happy with the way it was written in the first draft. The tech platforms definitely weren't happy with the way it was written. And so lots of lobbying and campaigning began with the music industry saying that uh, we needed safe harbor reform to save music and the tech sector, YouTube in particular, saying that safe harbor reform would kill the internet. So where we're at right now and what we're going to talk about in this conversation is that that safe harbor reform went through. Article 17 in the final draft reforms the safe harbor. It remains controversial. You know, there are plenty of tech companies and lobbying organizations who say that the reforms are damaging to the internet. But the music industry in the main, they didn't get exactly what it wanted in Article 17, but it was positive about the result. And so here we are. We have Article 17 in European law. It is now being implemented across the European Union by each EU member state. That is still happening. And so the questions which we're going to talk about today with Sophie and with Gregor is what's happening right now, what is likely to happen in the next few months, and how will it impact both the music industry and the tech platforms as this safe harbor reform within the EU actually gets into law properly at a national level. And then from a music industry perspective, assuming it works, what next? What about the UK? What about the US? What about the other grievances with safe harbor? Thank you very much, Chris. That was incredibly explained and, and succinct. Thanks very much. I feel like I've learned a huge amount already. Sophie and Gregor, can you explain to us sort of exactly what Article 17 actually says? So Article 17, if we look at what it is, you have two key aspects. One part of the article is really about rights holders. The other part of the article is really about users of social media platforms. So first, who does this apply to? As Chris mentioned, but it's important to, to see that the text 
also only applies to a certain category of internet intermediaries, not all of them. And the only category that is being defined by the text is something that is called content sharing platforms. So basically they have to enable users to store a large amount of copyright content to upload them, to store them, to organize them and promote them for profit-making purposes. So once you have that first category of intermediaries that is isolated, then you can apply to them and only them this new liability regime. What is the principle? It's that these services will be fully liable for any type of copyright material that will be uploaded unless they comply with several requirements. And it's important to see that this is a really big shift in copyright law. Because if you look at the safe harbor, the way it was drafted before, the rule was that you were not liable until something happened like a takedown request or until you were notified. So here you have a reverse of that principle. You are fully liable as a platform unless certain requirements are put in place. So what are these? They are more onerous than they used to be under the previous system. You have four requirements that the big platforms will be required to comply with. Some of those requirements are not going to be compulsory for some small platforms or new platforms, but for the sake of time, I'll just go through the, the four requirements without going into the detail of which apply and which doesn't, of so all the key platforms that you will be familiar with. The first requirement will be a best effort to license content that is uploaded. Second requirement is to have a takedown and have a system in place, of course, but also make sure that this system is also going to work on a best effort basis. So it needs to be state-of-the-art system and a robust system. It cannot be just any takedown system. The system needs to work in a different way than it did before because it needs to prevent future uploads. Again, as Chris explained really well earlier, this was one of the main complaints of the music industry is this idea that you had to play whack-a-mole and you had to keep notifying platforms that your content had been uploaded. And then finally, the last requirement is for platforms to make their best efforts to ensure the unavailability of content and future uploads. This is the condition that has been portrayed by almost everyone as the upload filters. Uh, bear in mind that the word filter does not appear in the directive itself. So the idea of a filter is not in theory required. But in practice, if you're trying to achieve this unavailability of content on your platform, it's difficult to imagine you can achieve that without implementing some kind of filter. If we move on to the second part of the Article 17 article, this is the part that then is focusing on safeguarding the rights of people using the platforms. While implementing those four requirements, platforms have been asked to not prejudice unnecessarily the rights of users. So they have to make sure that any measure that they put in place to comply with Article 17 
will not result in preventing the availability of certain content which might be protected by a copyright exception or which doesn't infringe copyright. So that means being able to identify content that is not protected by copyright or content that is in the public domain and also being able to identify content that is covered by a copyright exception. And then finally, you also have another aspect of Article 17, which is really important and being heavily debated at the moment. This is the obligation as part of the whole mechanism to create what is called a complaints and redress mechanism, which is likely to be um, a sophisticated chat or at least a way for users and rights holders to communicate with one another about a content that they don't agree on. The user believe it is covered by an exception. The rights holder disagrees. The rights holder will ask the platform to take the content down. The user will insist that it should stay up. What happens? And I'm sure we will be discussing in a few minutes a lot of the issues that are currently stemming from this particular point. Let's say that I run a record label or I'm an artist with a catalogue of work. What does this all actually mean for me? And I guess uh, more importantly right now, especially in the times we're in at the minute, am I actually going to earn more money from this? When Article 17 was passed, I mean, the music industry did not get everything it wanted. It, it was very much a compromise, although certainly once it had been passed, as a journalist, the press releases I was getting from the RFPI and GSAC for the collecting societies and from the indie labels, they were all telling me this was good. And it wasn't perfect, but we got pretty much what we wanted. Whereas the tech sector was telling me this is really bad, this law isn't going to work. So it did feel like the music industry were the winners, if you like. As the conversation has evolved and the draft came out of the European Commission, a lot of people in the music industry felt that those guidelines were a backward step and they were saying, no, it must be implemented as it was written in the directive. But I think, you know, even though it's all still in limbo and the answer is we don't really know, I think certainly when the directive was passed, the music industry felt our negotiating power will increase as a result of this. That's what the music companies are interested in. The next time we sit down with not YouTube, but a YouTube platform, we will have a stronger negotiating hand. So now I'll come to Sophie, in your opinion, is are, are the industry right to say they were the winners or actually is it slightly more nuanced than that? I'll leave this question to Gregor <laughs> in the first place. Uh, yeah, I mean, Sophie left me out of the legal bit, which is good because she's way more up on it than I am. I think, you know, the extent to which a label could get a better deal, quote-unquote, as a result of Article 17 really depends on the extension of any negotiating power. I think everybody knows that having your content up on you know, several of these big platforms has an enormous value in many ways. It may not yield the royalty rate that you would like or that you think is fair. You know, the nuclear option is only that you take it down. I think where it does definitely make things better for rights holders is that there isn't the ability for anybody who operates the type of service that's covered by Article 17, just to say, well, I don't need license. In that regard, there's definitely an improvement in the position of the, of the rights holders. I think the reality is, in most cases, you know, these platforms are already either licensed or actively seeking licenses. So you know, it then becomes a case of, are we renewing on better terms? And then there is one thing that the music industry tends to forget is that this Article 17 is not just for the music industry. 
It's for the entire copyright ecosystem. So what that means is if you are a service that is not only dedicated to music, if you have, say, video, you may have to deal with a ton of other copyright holders that were not traditionally licensing content to these platforms. You would have photographers, you would have studios, you would have all the rights holders in audiovisual content that would also claim a share of the revenue. So you are going to be in a position where the size of the pie is the same, but the amount of people sharing, claiming a share of that pie might grow. Of course, that might mean that the revenue distributed to music rights holders could be affected. And do we think this is actually going to change or could change a label's kind of marketing and promotion strategy? I mean, is this going to mean that you can't use certain platforms for promo anymore? Is, is there any other things that labels should be thinking about right now? Another thing that is not discussed a lot about Article 17 and also tends to be a little bit forgotten at the moment, you have what, what I call professional users on one hand and non-professional users on the other hand. And what the law says is that the Article 17 license will definitely cover the non-professional users. So people using social media and other platforms for fun. However, Article 17 gives permission to the rights holders to refuse to cover the professional users of the platforms. And actually Article 17 says it will not cover the professional users. So what that could mean is that anyone using social media and content sharing platforms that is a professional, i.e. all labels, all publishers, all artists using social media could end up in a world where they would have to make sure they have their own licenses in order to post. So I'm, I'm going to add a caveat to that before everyone starts to panic. At the moment, it sounds like rights holders, at least in the publishing world, are saying that they will not distinguish. So the noises we're hearing from mainly the CMOs and the collecting societies is that they will cover every users and their, their licenses. I'll just quickly throw in that. I mean, some people might remember there was a period when Facebook had yet to get its music industry licenses in place. But they had, under pressure from the music industry, started to put some audio ID and rights management technology in behind the scenes. And there was a period where the publishers in particular in the US started issuing lots of takedowns against Facebook. And so you had labels and artists uploading music to Facebook because that's what they'd done as part of their marketing campaigns for a number of years. And suddenly, because they didn't control the publishing rights, their videos were being blocked. Now, that was led by the publishers. Then... Facebook did its deals, the societies and the publishers, and everyone was happy with Facebook, and it ceased to be a problem. So now we can all put our content up on Facebook and assume that it's covered by some license somewhere. But I suppose what will be interesting to see is, as a result of this, will the platforms become more nervous about the restrictions of their licenses? Because there's a danger they start to become increasingly liable. Now, obviously, the platforms don't want to over-implement takedown because it reduces the 
pleasurable experience. I mean, or if you watch a lot of YouTuber content, an increasing number of YouTubers start the first 30 seconds of every video they upload moaning about content ID because it has ramped up naturally in, in recent years. But obviously, the platforms don't want to annoy their creators, so they, they will be careful of implementing these sort of ever more strict restrictions. But as a platform, as your liabilities increase, you are going to become more nervous about those things. So a lot of this, it's too soon to know, isn't it? But I mean, it, it could be that we start making more money in the next few years, but also as rights owners who don't own all the rights in the content that we are putting out there for marketing, that we start hitting up our own problems when, when it comes to the, the rights management systems. Well, just on that on that sort of YouTube tip, and just quickly before we get into questions, a lot of the chat around Article 17 has been focused on YouTube, obviously, like you said before, but what other services or kinds of services is this likely to apply to? So, for example, is this going to apply to live streaming? And if so, how's that going to affect what is a hugely, especially at the minute, important part of our industry? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, during the directive being negotiated, because YouTube started pushing out those alerts to every YouTube user about how Article 13 was going to kill the internet, it very much became the music industry versus YouTube in the press. But actually, I mean, it, I suppose it applies to any platform that comes under that definition that the laws come up with of, of content sharing platform or, or user upload platform, how I refer to them. And actually, it's interesting, particularly with the majors, I sort of sensed, even before Article 17 had been passed, the majors had kind of warmed again to YouTube, and YouTube was no longer the biggest enemy in the building. Because YouTube, meanwhile, was making commercial changes behind the scenes, they launched their streaming service, etc., etc. So for some people in the music industry, actually, this is completely not about YouTube anymore. Six, seven years ago, SoundCloud was part of the safe harbor conversation. Most people in the music industry now seem to have a good relationship with SoundCloud. So then the question is, well, what other platforms out there will it impact on? Actually, is it Twitch who are going to feel the most heat? Or is it platforms that we haven't really heard about yet? I think actually, it may well be that YouTube in a way ends up winning here because it's already doing a lot of the stuff that the law now says you have to do. Meanwhile, many of its competitors have, have a lot of catch up to play in order to meet those new requirements. On live streaming, I will hand over to Sophie and Gregor to get their take. Well, I think a challenging one because we also we work with a bunch of different players in the industry, including rights holders and platforms. So it would be hard for us to talk about individual platforms. But I do think the real victory is, you know, piracy is still a thing, right? And still a, a big thing in, in lots of countries. And it's those platforms that are really going to feel the heat. And you, I know you can have an argument about whether certain platforms are pirate platforms or not, but... Your point's a good one, Chris, is that the law is often two or three years behind the economic reality. And as you were talking about labels having a problem or with marketing on a particular platform, I was reminded of, I'm sure my age here, but I, I was reminded of going to meetings at Universal in the early days of download stores when there was discussion about, you know, whether the marketing department should be seeding content on Napster before it was licensed. There's always that tension for labels, that balance between getting your music heard and getting paid. And hopefully Article 17, the real victory is it stops those blatant pirate services existing and narrows the conversation really to big companies who can afford to pay and that never have intention of paying anything. Well, thanks very much for that, Chris, Sophie and Greg. I think we've probably only got like a couple of minutes after to open it up to any questions. I know, um, I know Laura Dana from... Um from Fuga had a question. How this directive and in general the 
takedown system, it, sometimes it feels to me that we are definitely achieving a solution towards part of the problem. But as Sophie was mentioning before, you get to a point where the infringement is not necessarily that clear. It's clear if it's Taylor Swift. It's not clear when you go into the indie sector and you have a plethora of licenses, sub-licenses, distributor of the distributors. You don't know how many claims we receive of people that want their content taken down because they just don't know that their label as a distributor was actually our client and therefore our name is the one in the chain and they don't know that we are actually authorized to distribute their content. And the problem where I think that the system gets broken of just stopping and saying take down is that it is going to result in a lot of money lost. When the content is taken down, nobody's making money anymore. And if there was something that would also kind of go to the extra step for up saying the money is we hold, or, you know, and then paid out eventually once the resolution is found, and if it's not found, then you need to find some sort of resolution. But I think that it, it, it gets into a discussion where not just necessarily about Article 17, but it also creates a solution for a lot of problems, I think, I and mean, that has been discussed so far, but it still leaves out the practicalities of how this is working in practice in the indie sector open to a loss of money rather than a gain. And I just wanted to know what people think about it. It kind of brings us back to the music rights data problem, doesn't it? And when the directive was in its, its sort of, you know, the most heated stages of negotiation, YouTube tried to use that as a negotiating tactic and saying, actually, the really big problem here is that we don't know who controls what recordings. We don't know what songs are in what recordings. They even got as far at one point, I don't know if it was on the record or behind the scenes, of saying the only solution to this would be a statutory license, a compulsory license. I would agree that the efficiency is, is always impacted when we have those big issues around copyright ownership and the lack of there being a central database that the platforms can pull into that tells them who controls what rights in what markets and, and, and so on and so forth. So I would agree that that is an issue that possibly, you know, it becomes an even bigger issue if the platforms start employing their takedown rules with, with more strictness. Steve, did you want to... On that subject, Facebook, for example, has a terrible rights management tool for music in that they can't provide any bulk actions. The way YouTube does, YouTube's had years and years to perfect it in allowing the, the conflicting parties to talk to each other. But on Facebook now, for example, there's no bulk functionality and you can't really even see much metadata and we're in contact with them trying to, to get it fixed. But um, is there anything in, in Article 17 that's, that deals with the exclusivity that is needed to monetize on platforms? Like, like she said, Licenses are all over the place. People think they have exclusivity and it's up for the parties to sort it out. So is there anything that could be improved by the new laws? I think the short answer is it doesn't fix that problem for sure. And it's definitely a problem that's endemic in the industry, right? It's largely a structural issue. I don't think that Article 17 really improves you know, what the platform has to do. Because it, it almost becomes a legal question, right? If someone hits up the platform and says, you've got to take it down because it's infringing, the platform isn't really a copyright court. It can't determine, it doesn't, you know, it, it can't make any label or rights holder proof title. It just has to take it down. And, and so it becomes a pretty blunt instrument. And, you know, it's, it, I agree with you, it's imperfect, but what Article 17 doesn't address that, I think it'd be quite difficult for it to do that. You know, platforms don't like being sued and YouTube's been sued a lot, right? And a lot. And 
you know, the, the level of copyright damages in the US at least is really severe. And so they have a vested interest in trying to resolve it. I think you know, many of them, have spent, and I'm not championing the cause of platforms, but I do think legitimately many of them have spent inordinate amount of money on trying to fix the problem, whether they could spend more. Yeah, I mean, almost, almost certainly they could. But I don't think they have a vested interest in pulling the handbrake. One other quick practical thing I would throw in while we're talking about audio ID is however good those platforms may or may not be, it seems certain that more platforms beyond YouTube, Facebook, SoundCloud are going to start having ID fingerprinting that technology. Most of them will probably buy it in initially because it's really expensive to build your own system. So most US platforms generally begin with Audible Magic. Uh, we've also got PEX in the US market. I've started to see companies like BMAT and, and DJ Monitor who are perhaps better known for the work they've done in the live and the festival space. They're all now dabbling on, on digital projects on the live streaming space. So I guess a practical point is as a label is making sure your recordings are in as many of those databases as possible. So when these platforms suddenly start bringing Audible Magic or BMAT into their system, you're already in the database. And, and some distributors are pushing your recordings into those databases already. You may not even know they're doing that, but there is an element of making sure as a label that your music is in as many of those databases as possible because more platforms are gonna be using that technology as, as the directive goes into action. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Chris. We see that still moving at the moment, but it's possible that those aggregators of fingerprints or audio IDs are going to play a significant role in the future in making sure that the system works. So making sure everything is recorded and logged in is a really good advice. Critical, critical for rights holders to get this content into the music recognition tech companies, as many of them as they can. Yeah, yeah. my question was just around the elements around speed of, of this. I'm just curious if the European updates have said anything about speed. It's a real issue. I think everyone is hoping that the final draft of the guidelines will say something about that. Basically, speed becomes increasingly important if you are going to say that the content stays online while you do the assessment as to whether that content is infringing or not. Or it can be important also if you say, no, first the content gets down, is taken down, and then you look at the claim and then you eventually put it back up, then speed becomes really important for the user. We don't have any clarity. I cannot say anything about it. it's going to be one day, two day, 24 hours or more than that. But it's a huge, uh, it's a topic that is entangled with this issue of basically when is this assessment going to take place and how quickly is it going to have to take place? Uh, Johnny, did you have a question? I just wanted to ask about the transparency around this. Is the sort of takedown request process you know, under Article 17 as, as it's coming in, is, is it all private or would there be sort of some, you know, publicly accessible elements you can see what's being taken down by who, when. I mean, obviously, Google on YouTube, Google publish a full transparency report around any takedowns of websites, blocking of piracy content and all of that. Is there a sort of similar thing coming into play here, do you think? There's no requirement in the directive to be transparent, but uh, actually we see that the draft transposition in certain countries have touched upon this point. Uh, I cannot say there's anything compulsory, but there is, for example, in France, um, some elements about the regulator in charge of Article 17 having to publish reports on an annual basis. 
So it, a regulator will have to be appointed in every member state. And then there will be elements that will have to be communicated to the regulator by the platforms and the people that are in charge of implementing or having Article 17. Will, will that result in a report where you can see, for example, I don't know, X percent of requests have been from the music industry and within the music industry, this and this and this rights holder are responsible for X percent. It could be, definitely. And that looks like at least some regulators are thinking about that. I suppose in more practical terms, the fact that the user rights are being recognised means that for the people who are getting the takedowns issued against their content, there is some enforced transparency because we have to respect those user rights. Obviously, that's not the same as, as transparency for the industry at large of how the system is working. But would you agree that because those user rights are very much being protected, that as the person having a takedown issued against them, there, there is a little bit of enforced transparency there? Absolutely. Yeah. This is the AFEM Industry Insider. Thanks again to Chris, Sophie and Gregor for giving up some of their time and expertise and to everyone who joined us on the call for that discussion and the uh, the questions afterwards as well. If you're listening to this podcast and you or your company aren't currently members of AFEM and you think it might be something you benefit from, you can find out more and get involved at Association for Electronic Music. Dot org. That's Association for Electronic Music.org. Next up, a little introduction to a really exciting and worthwhile new project we thought you might like to know about. Hi, my name's Sylvia Montello, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about Moving the Needle, which is an educational platform that we've set up to support women starting and getting into the music industry, but also helping to support them through that journey in the industry and helping to support them to get to senior leadership levels and to board level within the industry as well. Moving the Needle came about through conversations that a few of us had, um, you know, having managed to get to the top of our respective areas within music industry, we wanted to find a way in which we could give something back to the community um, and to help support women to navigate some of the challenges that we found through our own journeys within music as females. Um, when it comes to support for women within the electronic music industry in particular, there are a few areas here that we really wanted to, to dig into and offer support. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about the lack of gender equality, specifically within dance and electronic music. Um, you can see if you look at the lineup of the dance music festivals that have just been released for 2021, there's still a genuine lack of diversity on those lineups in terms of female DJs, female performers and MCs. Um, we've also found that um, some recent research that was done by Vic Bain Consulting has shown that there's a real inequality in terms of gender balance for women working within the electronic music sector. So whether it's as uh, producers or artists or songwriters, um, the gender balance there for certain genres can be as low as five to 10% of the overall. So this is obviously something that really needs to be worked on. Um, other things that we've found within dance and electronic, um, but also in the broader music industry as well, um, is the sexual harassment side of things that women can be experiencing, whether they're tour managers who turn up at a venue and, and are not believed that they're 
actually the tour manager or the DJ or the artist. Um, they're treated differently to how uh, an equivalent man will be treated. Uh, we've also found that women who are in a studio scenario as a songwriter or technician or producer uh, can often be exposed, quite literally exposed, to the sort of behaviours that are unacceptable um, and they don't find that these are safe spaces for them to be able to work as music professionals. Um, so on the educational side of moving the needle, we are looking to talk to schools, colleges, universities, lots of educational institutions to make sure women realise the whole breadth of careers that are available to them within the music industry. It's not just about being in front of a microphone or doing the kind of soft skills, PR and marketing sort of areas. But there are all sorts of uh, career opportunities for women across uh, more technical and operational areas, finance, legal um, and, and all those sorts of areas as well. And some of us that have formed Moving the Needle have extensive careers within those non-creative areas, if you like. So we want to make sure that women understand all of the areas that are open to them. Um, and when it comes to supporting women through the industry, we will be looking to set up mentorship schemes uh, and other platforms to be able to provide that sort of support, whether to individuals or to female organisations within the industry, to make sure that through every step of the journey, people are supported and they understand how to navigate the challenges um, but how to stand up for themselves and really be able to achieve um, everything that they can achieve and get to those senior levels and to board membership levels as well. So if you're interested in finding out more then go to our website www.mtnnow.com um, and there you'll find a short survey that you can fill in which will help us to identify what your challenges are, what the needs are that you might be signing up for, or indeed if you've got something that you want to offer and collaborate with us on, um, then equally please um, do fill out that short survey and then we'll get back to everybody and uh, build our community from there um, and start really getting to work and making sure that we get to a much better and more equal music industry than has been in the last few decades. Thanks very much. The Association for Electronic Music presents Industry Insider. Thanks very much to Sylvia for that. Sounds like a utterly fantastic project, so please do get in touch with them if you uh, want to get involved in that. And maybe share the link around your socials or your WhatsApp groups as well and just, just spread the word, because I think that is really, really brilliant. Uh, and just before we go, I'm going to hand over to Greg Marshall, General Manager of AFEM, for a quick update on what's been going on in the organisation over the last couple of turbulent months. Hi Andy, yes, so much been happening since the previous podcast. Uh, on the live sector activity to help support Turner Clubs, festivals and events, uh, AFEM's joined a group of European event trade bodies to engage with politicians at an EU level to push a coordinated post-lockdown opening strategy. Um, we're also one of the founding associations of the new live trade bodies set up in the UK to lobby government uh, there for support and safe reopening strategies. Over the past few months, we've run a number of education and group discussion sessions for our members, exploring future best practices to evolve the electronic music live sector post-COVID towards more financially fair, diverse and inclusive models through booking contract amendments and stronger networking with agents and promoters. Um, some great sessions also on how ticketed live streams are being licensed by collection societies and how 
artists and promoters of festival live streams might develop fair revenue share models for, for all involved. Our health group have produced mental health support resources, including top 10 tips for reducing stress and burnout, as well as some great interviews as part of Beatport's Reconnect When the Music Stops live stream. The Green Group are developing a Green Rider standard for artists that the live industry could adopt for a sustainable future for events as they return. Um, we're collaborating with the NTIA to produce a report of the value of electronic music, both economic and culturally, which is progressing well, but still a few months off. Uh, what else have we been doing? The launch of our Code of Conduct Against Sexual Harassment received huge support by media and adoption by businesses across electronic music. So we're now exploring how this code of conduct might be incorporated into booking artist contracts as a potential next step towards positive cultural change. And, and we've had a lot of new members joining AFM this year and getting involved in our initiatives or just to listen in on the group calls and education sessions or to connect with other members to explore new business opportunities. So if, you, if you're listening and involved in the business of electronic music, whether you're a, a one-person startup business or mid-sized or a large established company, you know, we want to hear from you, get you involved. Drop us an email on membership at afemorg.net or send us a message to our website, associationforelectronicmusic.org. Thank you very much, Greg, and thanks to you for listening. I really hope you found it um, useful and interesting. Make sure you subscribe or follow if you'd like it to land for free in your favourite podcast app. Every single time a new episode drops, you can also find it on Mixcloud. I'm Andy Durant, and I'll see you next time for another AFEM Industry Insider. Bye. The AFEM Industry Insider is brought to you by This Is Distorted, the world's biggest producer and syndicator of electronic music programs and podcasts. For more information, go to thisisdistorted.com or at thisisdistorted on socials. On air, on demand, on brand. This is Distorted.